0: The Problem Gambling Podcast is proudly sponsored by Gamban, the simple and effective way to block access to online gambling on all your devices. If willpower slips, Gamban doesn't. Go to gamban.com to find out more. If you would like to support this podcast, as well as our frontline treatment, prevention and helpline services, please consider donating €5 per month using the link in the episode description. Thank you. So welcome to episode three of the problem gambling podcast. Today, we have our first guest on and we're delighted to have uh, a former professional footballer uh, from the UK, Tony Kelly. Uh, He's played with numerous uh, teams, including Stoke City, Hull City, Cardiff City, Bristol City, Uh, he's even uh, played as a professional footballer in Sweden and uh, has lived experience of a gambling problem. He's written a book called Red Card. Uh, he has set up an organization called Red Card Consultancy in the UK, which does education around harm prevention for gambling. Uh, and I think you provide therapeutic services as well. But we'll get into all the details of that. Um, welcome aboard, Tony Kelly. How are you, sir? Thanks, guys. Yeah, not too bad. Yeah, looking forward to today.
1: So yeah, lot, a lot to talk about. As I, as I said before, my story is quite long. So
0: yes, brilliant. Now we're looking forward to it. How are you coping with the whole COVID situation? I've a, a brother over in London, and he's kind of giving me some updates. But how how's it going for you personally? Uh, well, for, luckily enough, unfortunately
1: enough, um, it, it's it's fortunate that I've got some you know I've got some stuff to do um, with with Red Card and with um the gambling commission and bits and bobs. so i think if i didn't have those things to do then yeah it probably would be a bit tough in terms of um you know finding things to do so yeah so it's just one of them things we just have to get used to I think will be like this for a while so yeah it's not too bad
0: you're coping okay yeah
1: yeah yeah
0: so let's start at the start some people a lot of people will be aware of your story some people might not be um you're from coventry originally um, tell us a little bit about growing up in Coventry, and at what point did you realise you were you were good at football, or you were going to head in that direction?
1: Well, yeah, I grew up in Coventry, in the Midlands. Um, from the from the age of ten, really, it was per, my, my dad took me to my first under-10s um, training session, local football club, and uh, it was from that moment onwards that you know I had a passion for wanting to be a footballer. Uh, like thousands and thousands of young boys. Um, And I think then through the school years, um, I progressively obviously got better. Um, Yeah, and it's just one of those things where, you know, you you just hope you get an opportunity. And for us though, I say us because we're sort of a a little bit of a footballing family in Coventry. Uh, Me and my twin brother, we both left school at 16 and and went to Bristol City as apprentices. And my older brother, Errington Kelly, Uh, He was already a professional footballer. He was um, at Coventry when they were in the first division and then went on to play for Peterborough and Bristol Rovers. So football was in the family anyway, so it's one of them things. It's just a natural progression that the the younger brothers were going to try and follow in their older brothers' footsteps. So, yeah, I think at 16, when we got that opportunity at Bristol City, that was the start of um, the journey to trying to become a professional footballer.
0: And okay, you're gonna to have to forgive my geography of England because it's terrible. How far <laughs> from how far from Coventry is Bristol City? And was that a big shock to the system going down there uh, as a teenager at sixteen? Yeah, I think um, I think there's a lot of young
1: players um, today. You know, young young players that go, that go to a football club that might be two, three, four, five hours away, and you have to leave your family and friends. Uh, so that's, I think that's the tough part of it, because obviously you've got to, you've got to fit in and you've got to cope with the fact that you know you're not going to see your family, you know, uh, on a regular basis, and uh, obviously make new friends, etc., and settle into a new city. So it's probably two and a half hours uh, from Coventry, Bristol. Um, but I think well, the the good thing for me, luckily enough, I, I was obviously like I said earlier, I've got, I have got a twin brother, so there is two of us. So I've got a twin brother, and. Um, so you know, I had him to bounce off basically. So the two of us um, we're identical twins, and we're very close to this date. And uh, so yeah, it, it was it was good for us too because we had each other. So we settling in wise, it wasn't it wasn't too hard. Um, but still, you know, not seeing mum and dad etc. and uh, building new relationships, um, yeah, that's that's probably the hardest bit. But once you know, after a couple of months, once you once you settle in, it's not too bad. Um, yeah, and. Then, I suppose being apprentices you know appre- being an apprentice at 16 is is not being is not what like it's like it is today um just an example I, I worked at Tottenham's Tottenham Hotspur's new training ground when it opened in 2012 uh as a s- security stroke liaison officer and uh the way the scholar well they call them scholars now but it's, it's the same uh, principle two year two year scholarship two year apprenticeship same thing um but they are you know they are literally pampered uh, they are literally pampered you know their boots are done from anymore they're not they're not cleaning terraces like back in our day um so they've got it a lot easier um back in our day we, we would do all the laundry do all the cleaning of the terraces cleaning the corridors basically you do everything you know you so say it wasn't just about training to become a footballer. There was a lot of hard work involved. It was, it was definitely a nine-to-five job. You wouldn't get out of the Ashton Gate, in our case, Bristol City's ground. You wouldn't get out of Ashton Gate until five o'clock. You know, that, that's the way it was back then. So, yeah, I think they've got it a little bit easier today, the scholars. But, um, yeah, it's that it's that two-year period, 16 to 18, that's where you've got to make your mark. Um, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately for me, um, it didn't quite go to plan, let's say.
0: So, well, tell us a bit more about that. Like what was going on for you during those two years? So it all
1: started well. Um, my manager was, was um, I don't know if uh, you guys will know in Ireland, but the legendary Leeds left back, Terry Cooper. So he was our manager. Um, and I had um, a really good start to my you know, young football career. So I, I played for the first team. Back in the third division, uh, I became the youngest player to play for Bristol City's first team, which was 16 and 244 days. Uh, so my career started really, really well. Um, I played. I made eight appearances as a 16, 17-year-old, which was really something uh, to achieve back then. So it was more or less like nailed on, I suppose you could say, in terms of, you know, me definitely getting a contract when I turn 18 uh, after after that kind of start. but what it what it was is it's it's one of them things i think um <clears throat> it goes with you know with, with life as a youngster growing up in terms of maturity some people develop quicker than others um maturity wise and i and i don't think I, I grew up to be fair and plus i took it um it went to my head basically uh, in terms of the fact that i was you know i was playing in the first team as a, as a young lad, I was um, training with the first team, so I thought in my in my mind I'm thinking I, I don't have to try as hard, so I slackened off a little bit. Um, then I was doing things like going out to to the nightclubs with the senior pros, senior pros being 21, 22, and that didn't go down well because obviously we were living in lodgings, um, and the lodgings are connected to the football club, so they they give a report on your behaviour and your attitude, etc. Um, they give a report back to the club because it's not just about what you do on the field it's what you do off the field so reports came back that I was you know out clubbing until two three in the morning and all that kind of stuff so yeah I think I was um, a little bit wild a little bit immature not really thinking about you know um, attitude wise Uh, yeah so it was a bit although um, it was a bit of a shock because obviously you know I I did really honestly think that I was going to be get a professional contract but uh, the more i thought about it afterwards you know the things that i was getting up to and slackening training and like i said late nights as a 16 17 year old um attitude wise i was i wasn't quite there so i remember terry cooper said to me um when he when he came and released me at 17 17 and a half um that you uh, he said your attitude stinks but he said you will be you will become a footballer if you continue but he said you got to sort your attitude out so i think he saw the ability that i had so it's just a matter of um growing up and uh, sorting my head out basically so yeah so i got released from bristol city and uh, went back to coventry uh, oh yeah my twin my twin got released about six months earlier because he unfortunately for him he um he didn't develop quite as quickly as me as a as a footballer um, it's just one of them things that you just didn't quite develop uh so anyway i went back to coventry tell between my legs um obviously that's that's the shameful part where you got to face all your f- friends and family and, and particularly my friends who 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 had thought that you know I was going to be a freshman footballer at 18 they were surprised that I was back uh, so I was picking up the pieces in Coventry and then deciding what I'm going to do next and that's when I um made my next career move
0: And just briefly before we go on from there Tony, Kelly um, uh, Tony O'Reilly, I don't know if you've come across this I've come across this a lot working with people over the years not just with gambling but with other addictions as well That be a lot of Men say that would have gone over to the UK to some of the clubs, um, could be Liverpool, United, Man United, Glasgow Celtic, any of the big, some of the bigger clubs. You know, as a trainee or looking to get an apprenticeship, uh, or going over schoolboys uh, who had this kind of bright promise of a bright future that never kind of panned out for them and never played out. And it's this lingering thing that they carried with them into adulthood. You know, this, this kind of shattered dreams or that they didn't fulfill their potential, D- D- Tony O'Reilly. I don't know if you've ever come across that working with people.
2: Yeah, I would have worked with a um, few people who would have had that experience with league of Ireland and in the UK as well. And I think it's the, I think a lot of it, I don't know whether Tony would agree. But I think it's a lot of the expectations that you put on yourself as well. And also. Um, going into that kind of environment, as you said, you know, you're out partying with the senior players. It can be that you're trying to fit in. You hear a lot of the stories as well around the GA in Ireland where there's talks of you know, trying to fit into the dressing room and trying to, um, you know, you're trying to make your mark in a team. So you're trying to um, maybe, you know, trying to get affirmed, trying to fit in really. Um, and, and that would be, that can cause a lot of problems, with someone who's gone over, I suppose, um, and leaving home at such a young age, um, when you're kind of on your developing, um, you know, in in a, in a in a mental kind of way, in a kind of mental stability kind of way, and that can be a huge amount of pressure for a young person. And you see the kind of, um, I suppose, especially in the Premier League and League One and the Championship, League Two over in England, you see all these, you know, all these people coming out late and talking with mental health issues like i was only looking at the thing on sky sports there about i can't remember the guy's name but he was playing with the manchester city um team had Ben Foden in it at a younger age and he was released and he was talking about the impact that had, had on him so i suppose it's huge expectations on a young person's shoulders and i, I know you were describing tony at 16 you know like and, and maybe a bit of the act out i'm sure if you if you're reflecting it could be that it was just too much too soon um and and that can be that can be a cause to kind of um kind of it can be caused to kind of really be worrying and then and then you can kind of drift into different types of behaviors that can have a kind of a knock-on effect into addiction or into mental health issues
0: yeah yeah okay no, no, I, um, I sorry tony kelly yeah i get
1: that oh yes all right i guess okay uh, i get that tony in terms of in terms of the uh fitting in i think that that's a big part of uh, the the football dressing room basically as, as we call it in terms of uh, there you know there are there are cliques within within football's dressing rooms um, it's, it can be a you know a ferocious place in terms of you know people might call it banter yeah but you know sometimes it can get personal and yeah and mentally you have to be strong it's, it's one of it's one of those I suppose it might be the same in other sports but particularly in professional football in that dressing room mentally you have to be quite strong and if you're not uh, then you can become quite isolated, particularly if you if you're really young, and so that that can have a knock-on effect, and you know it, it can cause you to feel low and have low self-esteem, and then you know that, as you said, Tony, that that can manifest itself in terms of when you leave football. So, yeah, it's not the easiest environment to um to to break into and to feel 100% confident with yourself. Uh, so yeah, there there are one or two other issues that go along with it. So yeah, it's a very important point. Mm-hmm.
0: So you're back in Coventry. You're talking about the, that kind of shame or embarrassment that you're feeling about having come back and being let let go by Bristol City. You're kind of 17, 17 and a half. Around 18, you went to London. You, you went to non-league, or you were playing for a non-league uh, Dulwich Hamlet when you got there. But were you working full-time on top of that? Or what was what, what brought you to London? Yeah, I think, uh, well, when, when I went... to Coventry
1: um, as I said earlier in terms of facing the music. Uh, Coventry then, I don't know what London was like then times but Coventry particularly in the Midlands, um, lots of things going on in terms of racism, um, in terms of unemployment so it wasn't the best environment to be around Uh, and my sister moved to London to train to be a teacher and she got a flat in Dulwich um, in southeast London and so she said oh know, yeah, to me and my twin why don't we come to London and st- start afresh, uh, get out of Coventry and uh, there's lot, plenty of work in London which there was in turn mainly in the security industry because obviously although we had we had our um, you know we passed our exams and all that it was a question of just getting into work quickly and so yeah we moved to our to Dulwich to live with our sister and um, doing our security roles and uh, I can't even remember the company but it was 12-hour shifts um, and then we signed for um, Dulwich Hamlet Dulwich Hamlet Football Club is a semi-professional football club uh, at a very, very good standard. Uh, we had um the players in our squad at that time, so that would have been 1984, stroke five. Uh, we had Alan Pardew in our team. We had Andy Gray who went on to Palace and Villa um, and a couple of others. So we, we had you know we had a very, very strong side. And and being in South East London, uh, generally speaking, a lot of these clubs like, you know could be Tootin' in Mitcham it could be Croydon Casuals it could be Dulwich Hamlet you know, at Greenwich borough where Ian right was that area of south east london was was predominantly rife with uh, scouts uh, you know, trying to look look and pick up pick up young players so um the one thing i will say about my attitude it it, it did start to change uh, i did start to become focused when i was 18 as i said before about growing up some people uh, develop mentally quicker than others. And I think I was starting to grow up and realizing that if you want to be a footballer, you've got to work hard. So um, yeah, I was really, really determined at 18, 19 to, to, you know, get a professional contract because I knew that there was so many players that had turned pro in 19, 20, 21. So I knew it it wasn't too late. So I just um, focused on playing well for Dulwich. Um, And then I, um, unfortunately, my sister moved to North London near Enfield uh, and I moved with her. And joined Enfield uh, semi-professional football club, and then Enfield to St Albans, which is only ten minutes away. Um, St Albans City Football Club in Hertfordshire, and that's where I got spotted by uh, Stoke City. So that period of um, two years of non-league football, uh, well, yeah, it was three years in total uh, with with uh, Hamlet and Enfield and St Albans. That was my sort of grounding in terms of uh continues to play well put myself in the shop window you know scouts were coming to games um and i knew that an opportunity would come so yeah um the first opportunity at 21 uh, well 20 actually 20 was uh was to get a contract in sweden someone came over from sweden to watch a st Albans city game and then the manager said to me after the game that you know how do you feel about going to sweden to play and that was you know that was it took, you know, a, a lot to think about because obviously I'm a 20-year-old and moving across the other side of the world, um, I had my partner at the time, um, but I think I remember, you know, the offer was really good in terms of a free, free accommodation, free car, it was tax-free money, it was playing second division football, professional football on, on a full-time basis. So I thought, right, okay, well, okay, it's not an English club, um, but it is professional football, it's going to be an experience. Um, so I went to Sweden for, for nine months, for a year for a contract. Um, and that was really, really enjoyable. It was really educational in terms of my football development, uh, because obviously you train every day. So you get fitter, playing with good players, um, experiencing different atmospheres, um, living well. So yeah, it was, it was a great experience. And I think that was probably the turning point in terms of when I came after the nine months and I returned back to St. Albans City, because it was a, a nine-month contract. As soon as i came back when i was 21 um it was just a question of i suppose um when not if because i had had the uh, clubs looking at me left right and center um i went to southampton um for a week's trial and that was really really um one of suppose, disappointing times in terms of um my experiences of trying to be be a professional footballer because i went to southampton with chris nickel as the manager they had Shearer and letizia there Um, And I spent the week's training, done really well, played uh, Oxford United in Reserves, done really well, Uh, 21 and First Division Southampton, massive club, and and so I thought, yeah, I'm definitely going to sign here, and they called me in on the Friday. And um, unfortunately, St. Albans City um, and Southampton could not agree a transfer fee. Now, we we have to understand that. I'm a a semi-professional footballer, unproven at professional level. So Southampton are not gonna break the bank. Um but it was a real shame because uh, they wanted a hundred thousand pounds for me and um you know St. Albans City weren't weren't, you know, St. Albans City wanted hundred thousand, uh Southampton weren't prepared, weren't prepared to pay that, which is understandable, I suppose. Hundred thousand pounds for a non-league player back then was a hell of a lot of money. So yeah, that, that dream was sort of crushed. Um and I wasn't happy about it to be fair. I was I fell out a little bit with the St. auburn City board, but yeah, the net, it wasn't too long, probably a month later when uh, Alan Ball, the legendary England, England player from 66 World, 66 World Cup, um, spotted me playing against Stevenage, Stevenage Borough on a Tuesday night. And uh, yeah, I was down to Victoria ground the next day. So so my opportunity to get back into professional football at 22, you know, came late. But like I said to you before, you know, there's a, there's a long list of players. In the English game, <clears throat> I'm not sure about uh, the Irish game, but there's a long list of English players that have turned professional in their early 20s—21, 22, 23. You know, Les Ferdinand, just Ian Wright. The list goes on. Jamie Vardy recently. So yeah, I always say to young players today, it's never ever too late. So yeah, that was my um, big opportunity, and I was absolutely over the moon when I went to Victoria Ground and um, talked with Alan Ball and the board uh, regarding signing for Stoke City in the second division.
0: So. Th- There was a lot there. I mean, okay, you moved to London, you're working, you started out with Dulwich Hamlet, then over to St Albans, then nine months in Sweden, the trial uh, with uh, Southampton. In terms of the gambling, am I right in thinking that the gambling started when you moved to London at 18? Yeah. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how that started?
1: Yeah, so um i didn't know hardly anything about about gambling as such um i will say that when i was it's only something that i thought about afterwards in later later years but when i was um i think like probably 13 14 um back in coventry we used to play in the garages guy you know these um vacant garages in the entry uh three-car brag was only like you know 10p and 20ps um three or four of us um, and I, and I started to think to myself, well, you know, did I have a, a feel for it back then? Is it something that developed within me? You know, so that, I thought I only thought about that in the last few years, but it was something that we did use. It was called three card brag. So, you know, that game three card brag and, yeah. um, yeah, so there was messed about that as little, little kids, 13, 14 with our little 10 p's. Um, and that's uh, I remember. I remember I got to know that game like inside out about going blind and the flushes and the straight and all that. Yeah, it really, st- it really as a young kid, it really stuck with me. That game it was very strange. But anyway, um, when I signed for Dulwich, fortunately or unfortunately, whichever really you look at it, uh, right next to the stadium was a, was an old Mecca bookmakers. I'll never forget on the um, sort of green and red colours they used. Mecca bookmakers <clears throat> and. um it, this goes back to a little bit of the point what Tony said earlier about fitting in, um, because there is a certain amount of peer pressure in terms of you know um, fitting in in different environments. And um, I was a young lad, you know, I was quite shy at 18, um, joining Dulwich Hamlet with with as I said names like Andy Gray and Alan Pardew etc. So, and obviously coming from Coventry and coming to a big city like London, um, so. I needed to somehow fit in, you know. What I mean, I didn't have the full confidence to, to you know, have all the band in the dressing room and all that. I'm only a young lad, um, so what happened with me is that there was about five players um, that used to play the football coupons uh, in the bookies on a Saturday before the game, pop in and put their football bets on, and um, I joined in with them, and that was um, that was my way of fitting in with with the clear. That was my way of becoming a little bit popular and getting a bit more confidence um plus uh, to, be, to be honest with you i found it quite interesting um because the lads are saying oh yeah you know 100 quid last week blah blah and i thought that's interesting and I remember it was um i think it was five pound my first bet and i think it was five aways they had uh, they had this bet on the coupon which is five aways and um yeah so i thought yeah there's five ways and i remember this the um seven homes so these the these these um kind of bet sort of just just like drew me in a little bit and obviously like I said um fitting in with the crowd fitting in with with the clique and um that's how it's that's how I started to get into you know main mainstream um gambling with those football coupons and obviously like anything you have your first win you know and and that adrenaline rush and you think you're going to win every week which obviously you don't um and it's one of them things that it creeps upon you and escalates in it but you don't really realize it It's it's a very strange thing um and it's that's that's how it started with me and and then in terms of the escalation um then that would go on in terms of eventually um after a few losses etc then i would start using some of my obviously my wages from work um yeah, and and, and then bit by bit, just you know, you know, week by week, month by month, bit by bit, it would slowly start to you know dominate you and slowly start to take hold um, until, it, with me anyway, it, it, I would say um, it started to take hold properly in terms of consuming me and my thoughts uh, when I when I signed for Stoke at twenty two. I think that was um, by the time I signed for Stoke, four years of um, gambling, although not an addict. Um, but it was it was there it was just ready to be um, opened up basically and um, when I signed for Stoke um, yeah I would say that's when the the real the real gambling started and how and the the impact it had on my life from from that point onwards
0: and just in terms of the the trip to Sweden because my wife from Sweden lived there for a few years there there's there's no such thing as a bookie shop in Sweden although they do football pools and stuff like that and you know, kind of casinos and blackjack in the in the bar and things like that did you gamble at all in sweden or was that a break from it or
1: the, the strange thing about uh, sweden is um so obviously i was 20 and, and obviously i was i was into the gambling um and i remember asking the players about uh, bookmakers um and i don't recall going into a bookmakers but i do recall going to the races and from my recollection And I'd say I'm ninety five percent right. From my recollection, recollection, we went with the players did take me to the races a few times to have a bet uh, because obviously I I, I wanted to have a bet. You know what I mean? It's still still there. Um, And but it was but it was like um, how do you describe it? Chariots. Yeah. Yeah. The American. Yeah.
0: (laughs) It was really. (laughs) Yeah.
1: yeah it was an eye opener that was Uh, i just said to my mate what the hell is this and they said this is our horse racing so i remember having a few little bets with that but that was just crazy but yeah i would would, i've got to the point where yeah i would do anything to have any kind of bet yeah because it's it's instilled in me now you know as i said it's starting to escalate so yeah so that was my experience of of, um betting on the horses in sweden yeah Mm.
0: but that's do you think that your betting decreased during that time? Obviously, we were trying to get a bet on, like, a, did it? Mm-hmm. Did it, can Yeah, it I think it decreased. What? I think I think it only decreased, but
1: but only because um, yeah, you know, the limitations that, and, and the accessibility of a bet but, but, but you know, obviously, it was still um inside me in terms of you know a burning desire to continue to gamble. Yeah. So, um,
0: yeah, it was only it was only because of the situation, yeah. So you're, when you're back in the UK, then you're sign, Alan Ball signs you for Stoke City, uh, and that's when you think that's kind of four years into your gambling. That's when I think it was really starting to take over at that point.
1: Yeah, I think um, people say today about... Um, how much money you earn, etc. Uh, whether it's you know footballers or bank managers or sp- sports people in general about the amount of finance you earn. But to me, and I thought I've sort of learned this along the way. is It's irrelevant how much money you earn. Um, so anybody, as, as you guys will know, get, can get um, addicted to gambling. Whether you're on you know universal credit or whether you're a student or whether you're a footballer. So the only thing with the, with the with the career that I had was um, I suppose. I would take bigger risks I suppose the, the, the losses were bigger because the outlays were bigger and so when I got into a position as as, as we call in industry chasing your losses when I got to that that kind of situation where I'm chasing losses I've got bills to pay I've got bills racking up um, getting into a bit of debt <clears throat> then um, yeah you do end up chasing your losses and you do sort of try and get you know your money back in one go by placing a big bet and then that goes down and then before you know it you're you're double the amount of debt you was in so yeah it's very very um it's very it's very difficult to try and control it yeah that's that's that's, that's the thing because it, it once it starts to control you you're basically fucked basically you, you know once once it's got you once it's controlled you once it's consumed you and it takes over your decision making your thought process your behaviors then you're in trouble you're in trouble and i and i got to the point for, for example um sign of a start second division um I remember a lot a lot of the occasions where I've lost them and it would be on um our <laughs> I, I laugh about it now because I just think about it now it was absolutely crazy but um was our coach trips <clears throat> away away games playing miles away three or four hours away somewhere sometimes overnight stays um and so we'd have like you know what we call the uh the old card school on the on the coach so, and every, and every back then in the 90s Every, and near every club, I'd say, I'd, I would literally say near enough every football club in the 92 football league clubs would have, you know, a card school group, you know, five, six, seven, eight players uh, get together on these long journeys, back at a coach, um, yeah, and uh, play three-card brag. And, you know, and I got heavily involved with that, um, lost a, lots of money. And then when with that, I think the, the sad thing about that is that when I look back now and I think of situations where I've lost money or, or my teammates lost the X amount of money, is that you know we're we're the damage is is deeper than deeper than what we actually think at the time because you know you you're you're going to come off a coach um, and arrive at a, at a stadium having lost a couple of grand. How the hell are you supposed to play football in front of you know ten thousand people or whatever? You know, it's, I don't. When I when I look back at that, I think how how we done it. You know, obviously it did have an impact on my form and my career, hence why my form was always sporadic, and hence why um, I moved to four or five different clubs and, um, you know, I didn't really uh, establish, my, well, I did, a, yeah, I played with quite 60-odd games for Stoke, I played 50-odd games for Berry, 50-odd games for Leyton Orient, yeah, but my career could have went in a different direction um, if obviously the, the, the gambling didn't take hold. So, yeah, the card schools were, you know, horrible times in terms of what players players lost and uh, give rights out IOUs which is like a ticket if you haven't got the cash then you'd write an IOU out so you may give you next week or whatever um, and, and even the more alarming thing about about these card schools with in, in the football game in the football world was the fact that the the managers and the chairmen and the directors used to join in. and that that's that's a very scary thought if you was to think about that happening today you know, bloody hell, everyone would go mental, but yeah, you know, people like Alan Board or Lou or whatever it is, you know, they join in, have a few hands, you know, so we talk about how gambling was <clears throat> or su- supposedly is normalized today, <clears throat> but it was, but it's always been normalized. But back then, it was, you know, no one batted an eyelid, no one talked about it, no one mentioned it, no one saw it as a problem, it wasn't saw as, as a serious addiction or anything like that. So, you know, with, with, when you have got chairmen and directors joining in card schools, then that just says it all to them. It's no big deal. So yeah, um, lots lots of little issues that that, that came uh, came up during uh, the football career in terms of, of of the gambling addiction. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, the, and again, sorry, just to move on a little bit, the uh, the other the other big thing for me in terms of big losses and in terms of um, how the gambling addiction gripped me was, uh, and this is where my big losses were. Because as you know, um, there was no apps then, there was no online gambling, there was no advertising promotion, etc. So I um I got heavily um, addicted to the casinos. So back then we'd start training at ten o'clock, uh, be out of the ground by half twelve. So it's not like today where a lot of teams do double sessions, etc. And all that. But back then you'd be out of the ground by half twelve. And I would be uh, straight down the casino, or you know, I'd have a two or three hours in the bookies, and then I'd be down the casino for the rest of the afternoon, and rest of the evening. Um, so I would, I you know, I had some big losses uh, throughout those you know eight, nine years as a pro in the casinos. Yeah, the casinos is probably what did the most damage. Yeah, so there's, there's lots of different times uh, where it's impacted on me, and lots of different um, ways that I was gambling. So yeah. Terminal. Yeah, so um, as I said, you know, there's diff- at those times. There's different um, different impacts in different ways. So whether it was financial, whether it was mentally, um, and obviously whether it was to do with my form, which you know it played a, it played a massive role. My, my actual form in terms of my my um, football appearances. So yeah, the impact was uh, was absolutely huge, absolutely huge.
0: Yeah, and you make a really interesting point there that I haven't really thought about before. I mean, I've heard stories about the, the card schools on the buses, you know, going to away games and stuff like that. That that kind of comes up fairly regularly. But then you think about the fact, okay, you've lost a grand or two grand or whatever amount of money, a, 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 an important amount of money to you, whatever you earn, and your head is, head is wrecked, as you'd say. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> and definitely. then you're expected to go out and perform in those circumstances and you have the manager and the chairman of the club kind of facilitating that and enabling it and getting involved and allowing it to happen and you know surely they would have some awareness that okay Tony's just lost a ton of money there and then he goes out and he has a bad performance like that they wouldn't put two and two together no no (laughs) which
1: which is which is crazy yeah and I know I talk about um people in a position of authority you know having having a role to play today and in terms of um which which is why I'm so big on awareness um because back then whether it was Lou McCarr or Alan Ball or Pat Holland whoever it was um they were tearing their hair out about me in terms of um one week I was brilliant the next week I was on another planet so they couldn't quite work out what was wrong with me but like you just said it with a bit more awareness and a bit more thought they could have Took me into the office and said, "Is anything bothering you, Tony? You know, have you got any problems, or any personal problems?" I said, "They could have asked me the question basically. Um, there's no guarantee that I would have opened up, but but I just might have. I just might have. So um, I think it's really important that, you know, as I said, people in position, authority, managers, teachers, employers, etc. They they need to um, basically monitor, monitor their staff uh, more closely into, in terms of you know what they might be going through uh, in terms of addiction or mental health, just you know it doesn't take two seconds just to ask a question and that, and that person might just open up they might do so yeah it's very alarming in terms of yeah like you said um they, they couldn't put uh, one-on-one together and make two they made three
0: yeah sorry tony I, it. Sorry I, I,
2: I just come in on that quickly that i remember when my kind of story broke and then you know there was the book of evidence for the court case and no, back the interviews for all the staff that used to work in the in the post office, and they were saying, a lot of them were saying that <clears throat> we knew there was something wrong, or we or we couldn't quite figure out, but it was never a thought that it could be gambling. And I suppose, like that, you're looking at probably that's about nine, ten years ago. So again, like in, in those days, if, if that was happening nowadays, and people were aware, it might be a little bit different. But back then, as you were saying, it wasn't an issue, it wasn't a problem. Yeah. And it's, I suppose, like just just to go on, like I, I would imagine, like and you you alluded to it there that it must have had a huge impact on your um on your playing and because even to a smaller level when I was playing with Hanover Harps and in the, in the over thirty five or it wasn't over thirty five at that stage it would have been but it would have been yeah it would be near the end of my kind of um would have been playing second division in Carlo. and I remember because I was so worried about bets that I had on I was nearly checking results at half time I was. And then I was so worried because I started at that stage in the later part of my playing football, I had been i had been stealing the money, so I was kind of I was pulling out of tackles because of I was thinking if, if I actually get injured, I ca- I can't go into work to cover this up. So to a lesser extent, it kind of it, it does have an impact. It had a huge impact on me on the one kind of that I had, which was playing sport on a Sunday. So I can imagine if it's on a professional level how how much of an impact trying to go out there and perform at an elite um, level that you can't even think straight or you can't concentrate or it's all back your mind about, oh, I have to play this part more or i to hide this from family and stuff like that. So um, I think that's a huge element of it. And I think if it was if it was that to happen in today's world, then there's so much um, kind of more about mental health issues. Um, I think it, I think you might have had a different experience of it. Yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah. And I think the the impact on um, not not just me as a footballer, or in terms of my mental health, um, you know, obviously, you know, going to a match on a Saturday afternoon, um, all I'll be thinking about is whether my accumulator is going to come in today. You know, that that's the kind of mentality I had when it when it came to um, you know, at the height of my addiction, uh, that was at the forefront of my mind. in in terms of not focused on the actual, you know, my actual profession and the actual match uh, at hand. So. It was always at the back of my mind about you know all my football results coming in on my accumulators horse racing coming in that kind of thing so mentally it just messes with your head and in terms of impact um is i think this goes not not just for footballers but just in everyday life because um, as you guys know you know thousands and thousands well millions of people gamble gamble now and we've got um We've got people that are, you know, struggling. Whether it's a university, or you hear about, you know, students dropping out and blowing their student grant loans. You've got people em- employees struggling at work and taking time off work. Same with with school children going truant. So the whole impact is sort of across the board in terms of how it affects people in different ways. Uh, so we really have to look at, um, yeah, as I said, that word impact is massive in terms of how it impacts on um, different indivi- individuals at different um, areas of their life and different professions. Yeah,
2: and I suppose just going back to what you were saying about you know in the area club that it was you found that you may maybe now partying to fit in or to with the senior players, and then would you would you think that maybe gambling because of a different culture in the new club where alcohol mightn't have been as much um as a kind of a, an outlet or um you know a way of kind of winding down as maybe in the probably a lower league club than you know when you went to when you stepped up and then gambling as you said was the way maybe that you felt that you could fit in as well so do you think that the need to fit in drove certain behaviors and then very much like that What, would you kind of recognize that that's where maybe the gambling came from that need to fit in and again it develops over time as you said you have all the elements of chasing and the kind of losing mother, all the, all the, the the other aspects of it. would you feel that maybe it was the, the fitting in aspect drove the addiction
1: yeah, but and and but I do think it's different for different people. Um, yeah, but I think for me, it, it seemed to be an element of that because even when I um left the non-league circuit and, and signed for Stoke City uh, again, I'm, I'm going into a, a brand new environment. You know, you got players like Noel Blake and Vince Lair, Mickey Thomas, and you know all the all these you know ex-first division players, and so you know I'm coming from. So, say, Albion City, and they're thinking, "Who the hell are they?" You know what I mean? So, uh, I've I've got to somehow fit in with these superstars. So, again, you know, it, it continued that that element of fitting in, that element of peer pressure, the element of trying to fit in with the crowd. So, as I said, that Stoke, we had five or six players that were that were regulars, um, you know, at the local book, bookies around the corner, whether it's just before a match or whether it's the the card school. So, yeah, I I got in with that that little group, obviously for for um confidential reasons i can't mention any names but um I, I got into uh some um yeah some card schools with with certain players at, at then so yeah for me personally it, it was a, a sort of way of trying to fit in um yeah but for others it might be different like you know i'm sure you guys know for others it can be lots of different things in terms of trauma in terms of you know it could be childhood stuff all kinds of different reasons
0: yeah yeah yep and Tony Kelly, I mean, in terms of okay, you had your time at Stoke, Barry Lake mm-hmm. Orient going through the different teams. Mm-hmm. Like, what was rock bottom for you? Like, at what point did you go, I need to do something here about my gambling? Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I, get, I get asked that a lot in terms of rock
1: bottom obviously you have you you have your you know you really really bad nights where you might lose you know three or four grand the weather in, in, in the casino times where i've had to fin you know not got no um money for food or petrol during the week and i remember i had to um there was a there was an opportunity and a point where i had to lock knock on lou Makari's door and um ask for a sub from uh i remember diane the secretary um and I asked for a sob because obviously I'm skint. Um, and he, ironically, um, Lou McCarr is in his big leather chair and um, behind him is um, his horse racing on the box. And <laughs> I'm thinking bloody hell. But uh, it, whether it was, an, uh, it was an opportunity for both of us. So Lou, Lou will tell you to this day that, you know, he, he could never work me out as such um, as a player. So um he could have asked the question you know the fact that i'm coming in to ask for a sub you know you know at the end of the day we are you know well fairly well paid fo- professional footballers you know what's the problem so he could have asked the question uh and i could have taken the opportunity to to say because obviously i was at a low point i was skint you know what i mean uh, and it's embarrassing going to ask your club for, for for money so yeah there's an element of shame obviously but uh as you guys know um one of the biggest things about us gamblers is that we stay in denial and um that's how I was. I didn't want to tell Lou or let the football club or more importantly, let let the players know about my um my situation because there is that element of shame. You've got pride and I just basically uh, I just kept stayed in denial. So that was a low point. Um but in terms of me actually turning around to myself and, and, and actually going to ask for help um for whatever reason i but mainly the reasons i just given i i i couldn't i couldn't so i i continued to um uh swim in this fucking deep waters and uh basically right until the end of my football career and even and even afterwards so uh yeah so I, th- th- there was there was points in, in my career where uh, it might have been where the car's been repossessed uh it might have been where you know the I've got an eviction day or threatening of court action for the repossession of the house uh situations with my partner you know arguing etc so all lots of different issues that, that that happened as as a direct result of the gambling addiction which which we can talk about later in terms of how it affects you know the whole family etc but um I just I just you know I just stayed in denial mate you know I, mean? I just couldn't I couldn't get get to tell um everybody and anybody, particularly family uh, and, and, and my employers, and, and, and uh, you know, hold my hand up and acknowledge and say, right, okay, I need help. I've got a problem. This is serious. Um, how, how can we address it? So I, yeah, and I think there's thousands of people like that, you know, you, you, I know we'll talk about it later, but in terms of um, people getting to that other extreme where there is no hope, um, suicide, etc. So, yeah, so it, it's took me in some dark places without a shadow of a doubt
0: yeah of course uh, mm. at, at what point did you get help at what point did you kind of run out of road and realize mm. well, look there's no other options yeah. here i have to stop gambling i have to get help
1: yeah i think my obviously way too late but um finished football lost five years to the game so uh finished football at 30 uh, i think late orient was the last english professional club and then Folkert was the last football club as such um just went there for a short period uh, at the end of my career um and then I um went into the working well, yeah call it the real world so to speak but I was used to that because um when I signed for a stoke I was a postman anyway so I was I wasn't afraid of going back into the real world and I went to a network rail for 10 years but obviously not not a uh, curtel gambling, not not saw the gambler so uh, the house in Stoke was eventually repossessed, um, and obviously I was thousands and thousands of, pound, thousands of pounds in debt. Um, lots of sort of I suppose, mental issues in terms of anxiety, uh, not sleeping, always stressed out. Lots of lots of different things in terms of you know my day to day living and how it affected me mentally. Um, so continued gambling can continue losing more money racking up more debt. And so what happened then is. Um, 2010 um so yeah we're talking 10 years ago um i made a decision to because obviously you know it's important to stress to people that when you are you know consumed with debt basically and you, know, you know i remember watching a um, documentary called um debt that killed me or something uh but when you're consumed with debt um it can take you to to places and, and far and beyond so I just wanted. I'd, I think I had thirty odd creditors, and um, there's my sister that we, we spoke about. Sort of a way out. What can I do? Um, sick of getting the phone calls and the, and the um, default letters and all the rest of the people knocking on my door. So I, um, yeah, I actually went bankrupt in 2010. Um, and uh, there's a bit in the book where I um, come out of the high court with my twin brother, and we go into the pub, and we get hammered because I was so happy. Uh, it was a massive, massive relief. In terms of uh, my bankruptcy, was um, 32 creditors, and I've kept the file to this day because I use it as a as a reminder, and I use it as a as an um, educational tool. And it's 192,000 pound was the um, total, and 32 creditors. So that was a start, I would say. Uh, it wasn't the start of you know that soft stop gambling, but it was the start of sort of sawing out the finances. And then from there, I had about roughly about three months uh, counselling, um, and it wasn't um, the traditional uh, therapy that you might get today, whether it's CBT, whatever it is. Mine was slightly different in terms that it was just seeing a counsellor about, because at this time there were so many things going on in my life, um, regarding me and the missus just on the verge of splitting up. Um, and then obviously the, the bankruptcy and my mental state. So it was about reevaluation of my life and looking at the hope looking at the future and looking at our way forward. So it's about a combination of things that we talked about in these sessions. Um, and what happened after that, subsequently after that is um, 2012 is when um, I started, I I had, uh, what was that, I suppose you could call it, sorry, 2011, actually, it was in that, it was in that just after the year that bankrupt. You could call it, a, a call in and, and before we go before we go any further, this is, this is um a personal thing so it's not it's not about anyone that's listening we have to respect everyone's um religions and faith. So I, I was working for Network Round and I had um working in a sig- signal box which is basically you know um working alone on a particular part of the track in, in North London and um I I got a visit. Uh, I was at Network Round for 10 years at this time I had a visit on a Sunday afternoon um and we don't get visitors the only person you will get as a visitor would be a um, regional manager or something and there was someone at the door that i didn't recognize um asked who he was he said he was the local uh, network rail chaplain so um i asked for his id etc and uh he's fine I said, I said well i've never had a visit from a chaplain in, and i've been here 10 years so it's a bit strange but uh, anyway came in um he had a, I remember he had a brand spanking new bible with him um and we sat down and we talked and uh, the, one of one of the things that he uh, he started to write out was um which, which obviously now i know was a um salvation prayer so i wrote this prayer out and uh signed it and we're both ready etc and we talked about where i'm at where i've been um about the future because it's the same time as the bankruptcy bankruptcy just going through um yeah and it was a real good two-hour chat it was a sunday afternoon i didn't have no trains due uh quiet day and yeah it was interesting because I've always obviously had my faith but I lost my faith and and I lost you know um worshiping or practicing or anything like that I, I just you know became uh consumed with all the gambling and all the football world etc so it wasn't a case of that when he left that all of a sudden everything's going to be rosy it wasn't a case of that all of a sudden I'm going to be at church every week no it wasn't like that it was a very 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 slow gradual thing and um within a, within a, of a year 18 months um i found myself uh, you know writing uh, my whole story putting pen to paper um and that was um with a4 paper and a biro so no computers no ghostwriting no nothing i just sat one night and started and i said i'll, I'll take it from when i'm nine years old and um I always say to myself that because if you would have asked me at that time um you're gonna write a book i would have laughed at you but i um spent 18 months the night after night after night writing away with this from this a4 stack of a4 paper manuscript was finished in 18 months and yeah and i put that down to um god put me on a new journey uh, and a new start in life um getting my story out and raising awareness and obviously you know warts and all and getting getting everything off my chest and letting family and friends know the extent of my addiction Um, and it was very therapeutic and if I felt absolutely you know blessed in terms of when I was writing I couldn't stop writing Um, and then before you know it you know 2013 stroke 14 well 2014 actually um, this book was um, finished and, and got published so that was the start where I started to realize right you know You've you've now wrote a book. Now everybody knows. You've done all the media stuff. You can talk about it um, openly. Um, don't feel any pressure. Don't feel any hurt anymore. Uh, don't have any regrets. You know, so I can I can do this and continue to do this. And this this will be it's like a as I said before, it's like a calling and a new journey for me. Um, and obviously, my local church became one of our sponsors. Um, and yeah, good friends with Father, Father Taman, who's a local pastor. So my Christian faith has has become a become a part of my of my new journey. So it was a that was the more or less um, the start of the real recovery. Um, so the book came out 2014 stroke 15, and that was a red card. Just in case you have got your cameras up, there you go, people. Yeah, <laughs> cool. And. Uh, <laughs> yeah but um yeah i was proud of the fact that when i finished that book and and it does tell the story of me growing up as a footballing country, and it does go into deep into the addiction and obviously funny stories during the professional football world uh so yeah it's quite a good read if i might say so and but that was just the start really and uh my family used to, you know obviously they're proud of when the book came out when they were doing all the normal stuff BBC breakfast and all the rest of it and then we decided we said oh what more can i do so um, this I think again this is another another part where I can only I can only I can only say to myself well you know this is this is um as I said respect to everyone's um, religions and faith but this is God's work as far as I'm concerned in terms of I don't come from a business background so setting up an organization is something completely um alien to me but somehow um yeah we are uh, People came into my life. I wanted to help. You know, we've got Red Card Gambling Support Project Incorporated. Um, and just to let you know, there's our Red Card brochure, and we are all about education, awareness, and prevention. Uh, so that was um, born in 2015. Um, and as I said, I had a lot of help with people coming together, wanting to be on board. Um, and I've done a few talks initially to start with. And I think um actually setting up setting up the organization yeah you know t- takes a bit of time and lots of different things and incorporating organization getting governance getting directors all the rest of it but um i managed to do that fine and uh yeah we've been going about three years actively now so the one thing i remember i had my first 2017 i had a friend in coventry who asked me to come for um to a gala dinner evening business gala dinner evening there were there were a speaker down and um she asked me if I could do just, you know, 15 minutes on my story and on the book. Then, you know, take into account the book wasn't out that long. And um, at first, obviously, you know, to be honest with you, at first I shit myself. You know I mean? That, that's, that's, the, that's the truth, that's truth of the matter. Um, but I thought, you know what? Yeah, what, why not? And I think after that talk in Coventry at the gala dinner, I think, I think it was the feedback and the fact that it seemed to resonate with a lot of people. Um, People come up to you afterwards, talking to me about their husband and talking about their brother. Um, and as you know, everywhere you go in, in, in the UK now, you talk to somebody, There's all they, they'll always know somebody, whether it's a friend or family or employee or whatever, that, that's, that's gambling. So yeah, that that's something that, that I thought, right, okay, it's, it's obvious that it's out there big time. It's obvious that a lot of people are suffering and um, the more I can share my story, the, the better. Uh, so yeah, so that was the recovery. Uh, red car gambling sport project which is as I said before we're I run the organization with a good little small team and we do education and awareness workshops and talks various organizations it could be with the rehab centers within schools and colleges various organizations so um, it doesn't really you know matter where we go because at the end of the day there's lots of different sectors uh, where where there's uh, employees or staff are struggling with gambling so we just want to get as much education awareness out there and um, so that, that's what that's what I do today and that's um I continue on the recovery journey um because as, as you all know you know there's the danger of relapse and uh, you can drop back into it anytime so you have to be careful so yeah so that's where I'm at
0: um today. Okay. I mean, you touched on your faith there and that is an important aspect of, of recovery for a lot of people. It could be religious faith. It could be a, some, a different concept of spirituality. That's very important mm-hmm. for a lot of people in their recovery. Um, And then the move to raising awareness, which this is something that myself and Tony uh, O'Reilly uh, do a lot of in our work as well, um, yeah. because there's mm-hmm. so little awareness around the sort of potential harms that are associated with gambling. you know Most people know you know, the, the harms associated with alcohol and other drugs, but gambling kind of flies under the radar. So it's brilliant that you're out there doing that work. Mm. Uh, I know you're doing this mm. with the Gambling Commission at the moment with their uh, experts of uh, by experience uh, panel, mm. and, and that's kind of in the early stages as well. We're probably yeah. going to have to wind up there fairly shortly. Tony O'Reilly, did you have any yeah. thoughts for Tony Kelly there?
2: No, I just wanted to thank you for sharing your story, Tony. Um, again, it's it's great to hear and it, that you're creating awareness over there and, and and kind of bringing the message out there. As and, and thanks for bringing me back to my youth with your grandstand ringtone as well. <laughs> you brought me back to my Saturday afternoon. <laughs> um. Yeah. So.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Oh, the grandstand.
2: Yeah. So thanks a million for yeah. coming on today. Yeah. yeah. And Tony O'Reilly.
0: Yeah, no worry. Tony O'Reilly, Liverpool fan. You can cover your ears now because I was watching Tony Kelly's uh, equaliser against Liverpool at Anfield on YouTube. There yesterday.
2: Ah. Very, very impressive. <laughs> 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 oh, grub along.
0: Yeah. Mm. You well, know. yeah. um, listen, thanks a million, Tony. For anybody who wants to get a copy of your book, Red Card, can they get that on Amazon or where's the best place to get that? Yeah, um the book is
1: available on Amazon so they can get that. Um obviously we're a we're a CIC company red card, so any um donations or anything just go through the website. They can call me direct or they can email me. Um and anybody that wants to talk about uh any gambling issues, yeah, that's fine. We can do that on, on the telephone free of charge. Uh, so yeah. Um yeah, so I just uh, hope everyone that everyone that's listened, um, you know, stay safe and that you know, be be just just continue to be aware.
0: Thanks a million, Tony. And the website is redcardconsultancy.co.uk. Is that right? Uh,
1: Kelly's
0: Kelly's Red Card Consultancy.co.uk. Oh, it's Kelly's Red Card Consultancy.co.uk. Tony Kelly, yeah. thanks a million for talking to us today. It's really really fascinating your life story and how you've mm-hmm. turned everything around and the work that you're doing to raise awareness and have a positive impact on people's lives around gambling addiction. Yeah. Thank you so much. And thanks to uh, you for listening today to the podcast. We'll uh, be back next week. We'll be talking to professor Colin O'Gara from St. John of God's hospital. who's one of the leading authorities on gambling addiction in Ireland. So looking forward to that as well. Thank you. and bye. If you would like to support this podcast, as well as our frontline treatment, prevention and helpline services, please consider donating €5 per month using the link in the episode description. Thank you.